Uh, let's pray. Lord God, speak to us now. Amen. Uh, well, I was thinking a lot, as you can imagine, all of yesterday about what, we, what I preach on today. And I found myself returning back to the text that was set, we planned ages ago, and the sermon that I'd written, I thought, this is right for us. Because what this text is all about is how unbelievably significant it is to build a community of grace, to build a local church, to build a community of love centered around Jesus. And uh, this morning we're going to look at, from, from this book of Hebrews, we're going to look at why it's so important to build such a thing. Uh, the particular intensity that we find in the, in the Bible's teaching on what the church is meant to be like. And we're going to look at how incredibly inclusive the local church is meant to be in this community of grace. Uh, I want to start with its importance. Uh, the importance of uh, a community of grace. And to show you why it's so important, I, we, we often miss this when we come to this bit of Hebrews... We, we've had this great, amazing theology of chapters 1 through 12, and it's high and exalted and remarkable. And then it feels like in chapter 13, you change gears, and you go into sort of a little to-do list of stuff. Uh, and you can go, well, what's that about? Now, the only reason we think that is because the chapter divisions in the English Bibles uh, actually confuse us and don't help. They're entirely arbitrary. And they actually break up the flow of the argument. So I've removed the chapter division here in the text on the screen. And here's why uh, the local community is so important. Because look at this. Verse 28 and 29 says this. Um, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So the big question from this text is, how do we worship God acceptably? Right? What does it mean to worship God, to respond to God? And the earlier part of chapter 12 in Hebrews, this whole talk about God as a consuming fire, comes from the Old Testament talking about when God appeared at Mount Sinai in fire and was revealed to the Israelites and they had this amazing encounter with God. And uh, the answer in the Old Testament to how do you worship God acceptably, having encountered him on the mountain as a consuming fire, what's the acceptable way to worship that God? What's the answer that's given in the Old Testament? The book of Leviticus. What do we see in the book of Leviticus? The law. A whole lot of regulations, ritual, cultic regulations. You've got to do this right. You've got to do that right. You've got to be careful about this, that, and the other thing going on and on and on. It said, Old Testament, this is how you worship God as a consuming fire. Law, 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 law. Now, book of Hebrews says God is a consuming fire, but he's come into our lives in Jesus Christ in a way that we can deeply connect and touch. Now, even more importantly, now that we don't just see God out there as a consuming fire, but we encounter God deeply personally in our lives in Jesus Christ, how do we acceptably worship God? Do we go to the book of Leviticus? Do we get a list of rules? What are we told? Keep on loving one another. As brothers and sisters, 
How do you worship God acceptably? What is the appropriate response to the grace of God in Jesus Christ? It's to build a community of grace. That's it. (laughs) Isn't that astounding? I mean, how important... It is, I think, impossible to overstate the importance of the local Christian community. You can't overstate it. When Jesus was here on earth, did he write a book? No. What did he do? He formed a community. What is God's plan to change the world? What is God's plan to help people see the kingdom of God and enter into the kingdom of God? Jesus didn't write a single word down that is recorded for us and that we know of. He formed a community of disciples. And then he said, we should do the same. And we should roll out these communities all around the world. And then the book of Hebrews says, yes, because when we love one another as brothers and sisters, when we form Christian community, when we are part of the local church, guess what? That is how we worship God acceptably. That's pretty significant, isn't it? It's pretty significant. There's another metaphor Jesus uses. There's a few metaphors Jesus uses for his people. He says, we're a city on a hill. Can you be a city on a hill by yourself? (laughs) We're a flock. We're his sheep. Always in the plural. The Christian life is absolutely, utterly, totally meant to be lived together. St. Augustine said, he who doesn't have... uh, the church as their mother can't have God as their father. <laughs> I've always liked that. I'm not sure it's completely true. I'm not sure really in completely what he had in mind. But he says it's abs- you know, the church, it's impossible, in my view, to overstate the importance of the church in God's plan and in God's kingdom in this world. Right? Uh, it's massively, significantly important. Um, now, uh, There's a growing community of people in the developed world, certainly in Canada, in the US, and here in Australia, of people who claim to be Christians, and maybe have been Christians for a very long time, but have pulled out of the church and and unplugged from a local Christian community. So I don't need the church to be a Christian. I don't need, I don't need to belong. I can just, it's just me and Jesus, and I can do my thing. Now, sometimes I can understand that. The church is very flawed. I mean, Christian communities can be enormously damaging and hurtful and frustrating because it's made up of people, right? Um, There's a whole... I was speaking to someone during this week who goes to a big church up on the North Shore so we can look down on them. Um, uh, You know, upper North Shore people are not like us. But, you know, she just said her heart is broken because there's so many of her peers in their sort of 40s and 50s who've just disconnected from the church. Yeah, they were keen once and now they've disconnected and now they're just drifting. She said it just breaks her heart. And, and I think it breaks God's heart because I think that the text says, listen, if you really want to worship Jesus, you've got to be in a community of grace where you learn to love each other like brothers and sisters. So that's its importance. But and this is the segue into the second point, which is uh, its remarkable intensity right? It's remarkable intensity. Uh, the, the, the Christian community of grace is not a club. It's not the RSL or the league's club or a sports club. 
where you come, you get your thing, and you leave. It's not a cafe where you order your, your meal, and if it's not quite like to your liking, you send it back or you leave and find another cafe. And in fact, he uses the language, the writer of Hebrews uses the language of family. He says, love one another as brothers and sisters. Keep on loving one another. And the word that is used here um, is uh, uh, Philadelphia. Sorry, I'm trying to transliterate as I go, from which, of course, you know, there's a city in America, Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Family love. Now you say, why is that so radical? Listen, in the ancient world when this was written, it was a society uh, and a worldview where you had no ethical obligations of care or concern for people who were not in your family or tribe. It was massively fragmented and racist. And so you actually didn't have to care for people. There was no ethical you know, you weren't called to love anyone outside. You had to love your family, but not anyone outside. And so here, the writer to Hebrews says, this act of loving your family is the most central virtue of the, of the ancient world. And this applies uh, to Christians and the Christian's church. So Lucian, uh, um, a Roman writer of the second century, talked about the scandal of the Christian church and said scandalously that Christians had no privacy and no private property. This is what the church was known for, no privacy. You couldn't, you know, because anyone could come into your community and make a claim on you to be your brother or sister. Completely unthinkable when this was written. There was no other community like this, literally. The way the Romans kept peace in their society at the time was by keeping all the tribal and ethnic groups separate. So the city of Rome, for example, was divided. Every tribe had its own area, and you never crossed into the the turf of another tribe. And here the writer says, listen, uh, every Christian, every other Christian is your sister or your brother. Man, means everyone who claims the name of Jesus has a claim on us for unconditional acceptance. Has a claim on us uh, for intimacy, right? Here's the thing about family, isn't it? Like, if you grow up with your siblings, you've, you know, you've seen your mum or your dad change your nappy and wipe the bottom of your, of your younger siblings, or they've seen your parents do that to you. Maybe you've done that to your younger siblings. Maybe, you know, you've shared baths, you've shared beds, you've shared holidays. You've, you just know each other. Just, that's what the local church, not, not changing nappies and sharing baths necessarily, but, you know, that deep, connected intimacy that comes over time that is there for all of us. There's an economic interdependence. Love each other as brothers and sisters means when someone is in strife economically, we help out. We connect with people. And you know what this is like as siblings. Uh, I mean, family have a claim on you that other people don't. My, my brother can connect with me. If, if I wasn't related to my brother, I suspect I would never. I mean, I, don't, I would never be friends with him. I would never take his emails. I would never answer his calls. But he's my brother. So I do. 
And so do you with your siblings and your family. And that's hard, but it's also good. And the Bible says, guess what? That's how we should connect with each other in the church, right? It's huge. It's huge. It's economic interdependence. There's intimacy. There's unconditional commitment to one another. And, you know, the wonderful thing about this church is uh, for 20 years, 40 years, 140 years on this hilltop, this is what's been happening. And you can see that, can't you? Uh, Just when tragedy strikes, as it has one member of our family, you can see this lived out just just by the pain that we all feel because a member of our family is in pain. You can see that just by the, the absolute outpouring of, of love and concern. I mean, f- first when Angus fell off his bike, and now in this. And you go, that's, that's love, right? That's what the church, this is what the church is meant to be. That we're there for each other when it's good and it's easy and it's wonderful and we rejoice with each other. You know, when, you know, when someone has a baby and, and it's all wonderful or someone gets married and it's fantastic and someone gets a promotion and it's, we rejoice when things are good and then we weep with each other when we weep and we are there for each other. There's no privacy. <laughs> we're in each other's homes. We're in each other's lives. There's no private property. Oh, that's a big one, isn't it? I mean, let's not overstate that. <laughs> but it means if someone in our church is destitute, if someone's poor and struggling, we just chip in. And I know this church has done that. That's what we do. That's so good, isn't it? That's just the local church. It's a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. Right? It's not a club. It's not a workplace where you're connected by contracts. You know, the, the contract of work is you come in and you donate your labor and they pay you and then you keep going until they don't want you anymore and they give you the boot or you get a better offer. It's not a club. Well, I like this club. I've stopped liking it. I join another club with people just like me in it. We're family, right? And one of the things about family is, uh, which was so horrifying to the surrounding pagan world about the church, was you don't get to choose who's in your family. And what was horrifying for high status ancient people, ancient pagans, in a world, in a hierarchical structure of patronage, you just didn't hang, if you were rich or successful, you knew that any poor person in your orbit was just there to get something from you, so you avoided them. And you were very careful who you associated with. And in the local church, you just don't get to choose. It's just, we're family. Wow. It's extraordinary. Now, here's the problem with this metaphor. It's a wonderful metaphor. One of the problems can be There can be a fine line between a church where we're all brothers and sisters and we love each other deeply and a closed, inward-looking sect or cult where we just exclude everybody else, can't there? There can be, like, you know, we we all know of, 
maybe have experienced churches that have gone a little too far down that end. You know, the closed brethren come to mind, Waco, Texas, the over-discipling movement of the 70s and 80s that came through parts of the church, zealous, intense, no freedom, controlling, manipulative. Now, that's not right. That's not, that's not a healthy family. And what the text does is it says, well, we're, we're the most intense of all communities, but what stops us becoming exclusive and cult-like and inward-looking? Well, look at verse 2. How else do we worship God? What else does our acceptable worship look like? Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Don't forget to include the outsiders. Now, this is really profound because, uh, which you don't see in the um, English, but the Greek word that is translated showing hospitality to strangers is actually, I try to translate, philoxenia. Do you see the similarity? And that word xenia, from which we get xenos, other, and xenophobia, fear of outsiders. And so in a very clever, conscious strategy, the writer says, form an intense community of family love and don't forget to be a community of stranger love, of other love of welcoming and pursuing and bringing in those who are different, those who are marginalized, those who are vulnerable, those who are currently outside your community. Completely radical and unthinkable. I mean, utterly so. You did not, if you were in, in, when this was written to the pagans, your family was everything. And then the writer says, now listen, your family is everything, but your family has wide open doors to bring in people who are different, who are strange, who are awkward, who are poor, who are vulnerable, who are not like you. That's how you build a community of grace. That's how we worship God acceptably, is by an intense community of love that is simultaneously the most inclusive, other person-centered, stranger, welcoming, poor person embracing community the world has ever known. There's no other community like that in the world that combines those two things. It's pretty radical. It's completely radical. Unheard of then and unseen now. You've got to do both if we're going to worship God acceptably according to Scripture. It's, it's quite remarkable. And then it has this weird little phrase, for by doing some, people have shown hospitality, other persons, stranger love, to angels without knowing that. Isn't that weird? Have you ever thought about what on earth that means? I have, and I'm like, what the heck? Well, it's talking about Genesis 18 and 19, and Abraham welcoming the angels from God. And I think this is what it's saying. In our normal human organization of life, we love pursuing angels. What do I mean by that? Well, when this was written, what you did in your community was you always tried to associate with people who could do something for you. Patrons, wealthy people, well-connected people, powerful people, people just like you, people who could advance your interests. Those are the, you pursued the angels. 
and you ignored the, the strangers. And the Bible seems to be saying to us, listen, if you pursue angels, you'll get nothing. But if you open your heart and your lives to strangers, to the least and the last and the lost, if we build a community of hospitality for the other, and we invite them into our homes, we invite them into our lives, we invite them in our small groups, we invite them into our hearts, you'll find that angels will walk into our church. (laughs) And they'll walk in in the guise of people who are very different to us, ethnically and racially, socioeconomically. They'll walk into our community in the guise of people who are drug addicts and are sex workers and are homeless and who are refugees and who vote for different political parties and who are just annoying, difficult, maybe with personality disorders. Maybe, you know, I don't know, they support the all blacks. I mean, you know, endless. And we beat them last night, didn't we, Cindy? So, you know, when you pursue angels, you go, I want, to, I want the rich people, the happy people, the nice people, the ones who make me feel good. You end up with nothing. And the Bible says the genius, the brilliance of the Christian community is when you open your heart and your life and your community to outsiders, to the young, to those who bring nothing to us, then you find that angels walk in. Wow. I, I mean, we've... We've had angels live with us, and we didn't know. It's amazing. We have an angel in our life. She's in Canada. She, I've told this story before. She's you know, walked into our church on Good Friday, and her pimp brought her to church. And she came to Christ out of a life of drug addiction in the sex industry. And she came back by herself on Easter Sunday. And, uh, you know, 500 people in church. I was exhausted. She just sat up the back. And uh, everyone had gone, and, and she was still there. And I went to talk to her, and she told me her story. And she said, you know, I've become a Christian. And uh, obviously, you know, I've left my pimp because he's a violent, abusive man. And I can't go back to work, and I have nothing, and I have nowhere to live. And uh, so what do you do? And you know, she came and lived with us for 12 months. She's an angel. <laughs> it was one of the hardest things we've ever done as a family. And I don't say it to make out that we're in any way great. I don't know if I'd have the courage or the stupidity to do something like that again. It was so hard. But actually, when I talk to my kids and when I think about my life over the last number of years, I go, Abby was an angel who walked into our lives. She's now finishing a law degree. She's clean. She's dating a beautiful Christian guy. And I go, I, don't, I just think that's the normal Christian life, right? I just think that's, there's nothing at all special about that. And, and I, to my shame, I say we've only done that a couple of times in our lives. And we've always had more space in our house than we need. Yeah, wow. (laughs) And our church has more space in it than we need, don't we? (laughs) There's lots of space here for people to welcome more strangers. I think our country has more space than we need. There's another whole sermon around welcoming asylum seekers, but I think you can roll this out and say, I think we we can do that as well a little better than, a lot better than we're doing, right? So this is the two. Now, it's not easy for a church. So churches and communities can, 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 or can become closed and loving or they can be, often can become outward looking. But it's hard, really hard to do both. 
Um, so here at church, we use this tool called natural church development I've introduced. It's an approach to understand the health of the church and used around the world, 80,000 churches, massive database. There are two quality characteristics it measures. One is holistic small groups, which really measures the intensity of our family relationships. And the other is need-oriented evangelism, which is really a way of measuring how good we are at welcoming outsiders, right? And connecting with the needs of people who aren't yet here. So let me tell you a story of two denominations. The Anglican denomination in Australia uh, and in Canada and the US and the UK in the 70s and 80s was massively influenced by the small group movement. And so you'll see this around Sydney. Um, every church does small groups incredibly well, our church included. Bought into a small group Bible study, influenced by a sort of a therapeutic model of group work. So we come into groups that are tight and committed, and we love each other, we serve each other, we share each other's problems, we debrief, it's safe, we can be vulnerable there. Uh, we're really good at that. The Anglican Church across Australia, irrespective of its theology, is good at small groups. So you come into one of our churches, you get into a small group, we will love each other well. Guess what is our least developed area, our weakness in the Anglican church across the country? It's need-oriented evangelism. It's welcoming the other. It's not just us. It's true of us. And it's not, this is not beating the Anglican church over a stick. It's just saying we've been really good at this and we've struggled with welcoming in outsiders. We've become a church of, of the middle class and the affluent. Okay, now... Let me tell you the story of another denomination, the Salvation Army. I've also used NCD across the country. Let me tell you the results of the Salvation Army. What do you think they're really, 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 really good at as a, as a denomination? Welcoming in strangers and outsiders, need-oriented evangelism across the country. They are just good. Hunt, yeah, that's their DNA. Where's welcome the outsiders? But guess what they're not good at? Once you get someone into their church, actually loving, so incredibly good at loving and welcoming outsiders, but once they come in, there's not a lot for them there. And this is their big challenge across Australia. I think the Bible says, if we want to acceptably worship God, we need to just relentlessly work on doing both. Don't ever diminish how wonderful it is to experience the love of a brother, of a family. We need to be a close, loving family. But we've also got to continually be open to outsiders and the others. And let me tell you what I was thinking about this. Um, it makes so much sense, right? I was thinking about what we're going through as a family, like Angus and Sylvia, and the incredible love they're receiving now. And I know they will receive. And the incredible love that many of you have received in your tragedies of, through life over the last 20 or 30 years. And I thought, isn't that, I mean, it is so wonderful. But do you know, there are millions of people in our city who when they walk through a tragedy like Angus and Sylvia, they won't have a church community around them to love them and support them. They'll be alone in that. Let me tell you, I know. They will be walking through the tragedies of life alone, maybe with a handful of immediate family around them. And we've got all this, we've got, you know, like 200 people involved in our church. We've got all this love and, and we take it for granted. And I go, you know what? Imagine if everyone in the city, when they went through their personal tragedies, had a church like ours to belong to. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? That's what I, that's what I want for people. 
that everyone can receive that kind of love. That's why we throw open the doors to strangers so that others can enter into the love that we experience, right? That's why we accept asylum seekers and refugees. (laughs) And there's space in our hearts and in our country for more people to experience the love and the security and the prosperity that we enjoy. The the same dynamic works. Yeah, we want more and more folk to know that because it's so good. But it's hard, isn't it? Because you go, I found a little group that works for me. I don't want it messed up by others joining. Or I'm really good at reaching out to other people out there because close intimate relationships, they're way too hard. So I'd rather go serve the poor because actually loving people up close is hard. So how do we do that? Where's the power for this come from? And look, the only way we're going to get this right is from uh, this promise that God has for us in, chapter, in verse 5 where he says, look at this. Where's the power come from? God says, so he says this, keep your lives, and there's, there's a whole another five sermons to preach here, which I won't do. He says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Okay, so how do I get the power to love somebody who might let me down? Well, I, I can only do that because I know I, I'm loved by God who will never let me down. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, A Grief Observed. He says, the only way to avoid the pain of loss is to avoid ever getting into a relationship because every relationship ends. Every one of us will be forsaken by every other person around us. It's just we're all going to die and we're going to die alone. And on that path to death, we will forsake those around us and then we will ultimately, they will forsake us. Um, I find 25 years of pastoral work and being in a church, and maybe you do, excruciating, and it gets worse and worse because not only do I have the pain of the loss of my own family, but when I'm in a church and when I love people, I have to deal with the loss of hundreds the pain of, but, but on, this, at the same, on the same hand, at the same time, I get all the joy of being in a, a massive extended family. Where do I get the power to keep, where do you get the power to keep building a Christian community of love and intimacy and vulnerability with people who will inevitably forsake you? Where do you get it? You get it because you know there is a God who will never forsake you. There is only one person who will walk with you, not just through the valley of the shadow of death, but will walk with you on the other side of the valley as you step from this world into the next. There is only one person who will take that journey with you, and that is God. Otherwise, we die alone. But in Christ, you die. God is with you. He will never forsake you. So no matter what loss you experience in life, that loss is never enough, is never so much that you can't love another person because you know that the loss is not the last word. That's the life, isn't it? We'll be forsaken Arch Hart is a psychologist who had a profound influence on me as a young man, said this in in words that 
changed my life as a 19-year-old. He said, everything in life is loss. The only thing I gain in life is Christ, but in him I gain all things. So that's where we get the power to form a community of love. Even when it hurts and there's loss, as there inevitably will be. That's also where we get the power to welcome other people in. Because of the big fear when I open up my heart to others and I open up my community and open my home is they'll wreck this good thing that I've got. I can't tell you in 20 years of being in churches how many conversations I've had with people in small groups who've drunk deeply from the well of of a kind of therapeutic small group model, which is good, who when we talk about bringing new people into their group are full of fear at, um, at, at what it'll cost them terms of wrecking the group dynamics. And I know that. We've led small groups. We know that. What gives us the courage to risk losing the good thing we have so that others can join us? It's because we know that there's a God who will never forsake us. So no matter what we might lose by bringing in new people, in the end we have everything in Christ. So friends, um, let's worship God acceptably. Let's, let's build a church. Let's continue. I love this. Look at, let's continue to build a church where we love each other like family, deeply, unconditionally. But where we also find angels walking amongst us as we hold our arms and our hearts and our time and our homes and our wallets open to strangers to come in. Let's do that kind of a church because we know that God is with us He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And in him we are completely, utterly, eternally secure. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, have mercy on us. Have mercy on our church. We thank you so much for the bonds of love that are so deep in this church. Thank you for the way we are a family. Thank you also for the way over decades we've welcomed new people in and I pray in the weeks and months and years ahead that we will become more and more intensely and closely connected as a family and we will become more and more radically welcoming and open to others who are different to us and I pray that this will bring you great delight and joy God and bring us enormous blessing and uh, change the world and the destiny for hundreds and even thousands of people around us. And we ask this in your name. Amen.